Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This episode is supported by Chimney Fire Coffee. Chimney Fire Coffee. Supporting ethical and eco-friendly practices. Chimney. All the way from farm to cup. Fire Coffee. They source their beans from El Salvador, Ethiopia, Peru and Brazil. Then they roast them in the Surrey Hills. In the nice bit between Guildford and Dorking. Jimmy. They work directly with farmers. Fire coffee. And they share their stories. Jimmy. Their packaging is fully compostable. Fire coffee. Listeners to Three in a Bar can get 20% off their first coffee order. Simply head to chimneyfirecoffee.com and use the code 3INABAR at checkout. This is 3 in a Bar, a podcast where we are joined by a different musician every episode. I'm Seb Philpot. And I'm Verity Simmons. I play the trumpet. And I play the cello. Our guests could be from any part of the music world. We've spoken to pop stars, composers, orchestral musicians, singers, musical theatre performers and lots more. We chat about their careers, ambitions and get a glimpse into what makes each musician unique. Shall we sing the song? Oh, don't make me sing the song. Three, three in a bar. Hey, I tell you what, auto-tune is a wonderful thing. First round's on me. Okay. How's it going? All right. Good. We're recording. Fantastic. Can you hear me normally? Everything sounds normal to you. That sounds quite normal. Good. Why? What's going on? Well, because it was questioning what I wanted to use, which um, whether I wanted to use the computer's microphone or my setup. Got it? Good. Sounds good. Sounds like if you if you tap the mic, I can probably. Okay, here hear. we go. You hear that? No. Oh, it's <laughs> alarming. How about if uh, I do that? You hear that? No. Oh dear. That's not good. No. Should I try but maybe again? Maybe it's. Um, hmm. I don't think hmm. Zencaster would get rid of that. No, it's strange, isn't it? That's oh, well. weird. Could you like wow. really punch it? Just smash it. Here we go. Oh, did again. you get that? I think I got something. Yeah. Did you? Well, let me try doing it on mine. On. Oh, I heard that. Yeah. Yeah, this is fun. Should we just keep doing this? Half an hour's worth of this, smashing the mic. <laughs> That's what a podcast that? is, isn't it? Just two people punching a microphone. <laughs> That's what we've got to. That's the level we've sung to now. Wow. 
we lucky we even got a podcast this week. Oh my god, this it's been was, stressful. Uh, this has been this has caused some some sleepless nights and uh, loss of some yeah. hair. Um, yeah, well. I've definitely got a lot greyer underneath the dye. Yeah, yeah. Well, should Stress. we explain? Well, well, shall we go on? Go on, Seb. Well, this week is with the brilliant musician Jules Buckley. Um, and we chatted to him a couple of weeks ago, but uh, there was a problem technically, and his side of the conversation didn't upload properly. How and, sick uh, did you feel when when you found that had <sighs> happened? Because I'd say <laughs> fairly high levels of sickness. Yeah, just like it's like the all my insides just fell out of my body, and all my skin and my organs and face <laughs> fell off. <laughs> It's just yeah, a little exactly sad skeleton. That. Yeah, <laughs> exactly that. Oh God, because it was such <sighs> a great chat. It was and, really um, good, and obviously yeah. we were a li- we were a little bit bit nervous before. Mm. The man's done quite a few things. Um, yeah. So we, but it went it went well, I think. And then we got we hung up the thing, and uh, and it just said there is a problem, hasn't uploaded, um, oh. which is fine because then. Normally, that person just needs to upload it, um, but it was kind of hard to get back in touch with with Jules. Yeah, he's a busy, um, busy man. He's got a lot man, going on in his life. Imagine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there was a good week or so where <laughs> it was basically Schrodinger's Jules Buckley. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> somewhere in the ether. Between oh. here and Berlin. And um, oh, I'm so glad we've got it for you. We've got it. <laughs> because, you know, like you were saying, he's done so much. In fact, look, I've got his biography here. Shall I crack yeah. into it? Oh, please. You get yeah. started. Thanks. Here we go. Um, conductor, arranger, curator, and composer Jules Buckley is a unique and rare breed of artist. I love rare breeds. Great. Yeah. What's he- your favorite rare breed? I really like the pigs that are slightly rare. <laughs> yeah, those little mini pigs. Yeah, they're great, aren't they? I also yeah. love rare breed composers and um, conductors, so that's lucky. Um, oh, good. He, <laughs> he has collaborated with some of the most important musicians on the planet, trailblazing his way through a staggering discography of almost 70 albums, more than most artists achieve in a lifetime, because I should say he's very young, early 40s. He's very young. Very, very young. Um, he is a Grammy winner with two number one albums and the go-to orchestrator for some of the world's leading names in music. Through his mastery of non-classical orchestral music, he has pushed the boundaries of almost all musical genres by placing them in an orchestral context, earning himself a reputation as a pioneering genre alchemist. Oh, that's Whoa. good. That's good, isn't it? That's a good one. Now, it goes on. Uh, there's a lot more to say, but just yeah. to paraphrase, he's basically worked with everyone. He is the yeah. founder yeah. of Heritage Orchestra, um, hugely successful. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of them. Metropole Orchestra. They're in the Netherlands, aren't they? And yeah. Are very, very good. A similar sort of vein, aren't they, to Heritage? Yeah. yeah. Mm. And now he is... Now, let's get this right. I barely got it right in the interview, so let's see if I can do it now. He <laughs> is the creative artist in association with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. So he's doing all these Wowzers. kind of innovative new things with them, and he's really excited by that, and it sounds super cool. 
Brilliant. Mm. Could you also just start listing some of the artists that he's worked with? Oh, okay. Well, let's start with Quincy Jones because he's a big one, isn't he? Yeah. Um, He's also worked with Leanne Le Havas. He has worked with... uh, Wretch 32, Stormzy. He has worked with so many people. Why have I not got a very extensive list here? Your list? I mean, it's, it's quite random, isn't it? I'm picking random names. Jacob Collier, he's worked with. Um, yeah. Well, he's about to do a gig at the Barbican with the Britain Symphonia and Father John Misty, which leads to an excellent moment in this conversation where it appears that Jules hangs up when Seb angles for some tickets. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, that's kind of where um, uh, our technical problems are more apparent because uh, he did rejoin, but that part of the conversation didn't really work, no. didn't upload properly. So uh, the ending might, I, to be honest, I haven't actually edited this episode, yet. <laughs> so <laughs> not sure how this conversation is going to end. Um, no. Is it going to end? in that very awkward moment or another awkward moment probably there. So, there there's a couple uh, around we'll there that out. you could pick from there are a few <laughs> on there. yes yeah so i actually know jules historically um makes do it sound you? like it's many years longer than it was <laughs> yes i do we were at, at the Guildhall school of music and drama together many moons ago so it's very nice but i haven't actually seen him since graduating in the flesh but it felt like, you know, could have been last week. He was very easy to chat to, wasn't he? Were you the first year that um, of the Guildhall being open? Yes, I was. I was. And um, I arrived by a horse-drawn... Yeah, I had a horse-drawn cart that took my uh, trunk to the Guildhall. <laughs> and at the same time, uh, Mozart was working in London at the time. It was lovely. Oh, yeah. Good times, good times. Oh, it was a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you had to go and, and uh, go into the air raid uh, <laughs> sh- shelter, didn't you? The Anderson shelter. The yeah, oh, but Vera Lynn, well, she kept us going. Oh, she kept us going. Didn't, you didn't, cheeky, cheeky kept, young kept man. You going. Cheeky. <laughs> um, so... Let's get into the chat and um, yes. let's hear all about Jules Buckley. Oh, has it been a full-on morning already? Um, no, I just I uh, I got a bit caught in traffic going to my meeting, and then I got caught in traffic coming back, oh, and it just God. hacked an hour out of my life. But all ah, good. God damn it! It's the same wherever you are in the world, isn't it, Jules? It's the same London. That's it. Berlin. The rat race it never stops. No. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. You're a legend. That's brilliant that you can spare some time. Yeah, no worries. It's cool. It's good to see you. It's been nice a while, isn't it? I was trying to work out. I reckon it's been 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I was in the I was in the Barbican two weeks ago or something, and yeah. uh, I walked past like Sundial Court. Oh my god! And it nothing's changed, has it? Because it's sort of that area is not really going to change um, in terms of buildings and stuff. Not at and all. And it literally just looked like it was stuck in time because it was also a weekend. And do you remember how on the weekends it was dead, right? Nothing. Yeah. No cars, nobody. Yeah. And um, the hilarious thing was that I remember there used to be down the road from the halls, there used to be a PC World or something like that. Yes, I remember that, that. That was where I bought my first DVD. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Well, they don't even have DVDs no. anymore. What was it? What was your first DVD? What, the player, you mean? Not the... 
The Matrix. Oh, The Matrix. The Matrix. Classic. Classic choice. Which is kind of hilarious because I even went, you know, trying to relive past glories. Of course, you know, you go to the cinema with all these expectations of like, this. oh man, it's going to be just like when I saw that first one back in 99. And it was absolutely toilet. Oh God, was it? I haven't been yet. It's terrible. Right. Won't bother. Won't bother at all. Because you're going to be back working around the Barbican though soon, aren't you? And that's going to be, will it be weird? I mean, if you've probably done loads of gigs in the Barbican since leaving, but is it going to be strange going back there? No, not at all. Because I, 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 I guess I've been there over the years, you know, every every season or so to do something. And um, I actually have a really nice feeling about it, you know. Like I've not really been back to Guildhall, don't not sure I've done anything actually, maybe once, years and years and years ago, but not really been back there at all. But um, I have a really nice feeling about it. I mean, it's hilarious as well because you remember they used to do that. There was that sort of soloist kind of competition, wasn't there, when we were at college all together. And um, I think the first time I went into that space, that's what I saw. I saw Max Max Riznov and he oh. broke his string on his viola, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. And that, that was my first sort of image of the barbecue. And what I remember was that if you're up in the gods part of that, symphony hall it seems huge like it it seemed ginormous in the same way as like when i was about 15 or something i saw oscar peterson in uh montreux and we just got off a bus as like a student big band and i remember being in the same sort of seats and watching him in the miles davis hall and i was in the miles davis hall about two summers ago doing the same festival and it's sort of Halls are always completely different when you're the other way around and they're never as big as you think they are, you know. But when you're in the audience, it's however they design these things, it works, you know, like that feeling of like impact and uh, gravity, it all seems to work. But when you're on stage in the Barbican, I'm always a little bit more like, it looks a bit like a library. Do you know yeah, what I mean? It, yeah, it, totally. They've got these like sound diffusers going between the layers and it always looks like a library. But in a kind of, it's a bit James Bond, isn't it, really? <laughs> oh, they'd be pleased to hear you say that, I think. That's <laughs> up, up their credentials. Have you guys met before? Have you, Seb, have you met no, Jules, another the, fellow trumpeting? No, I don't think so. Yeah, good to meet you, Sebastian. Hello, nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. So you played the trumpet when you were younger. I was. I, I watched something on YouTube. You were talking about your very early days. And it, I, it's really interesting because th- I've got a very similar thing where you said you started piano lessons really young, but didn't really get get on with it. Yeah, and stopped, and then you started playing the trumpet a bit later. And I had exactly the same thing. Yeah, I think I was just too young to to kind of dial into the required diligence of you know daily practice. And um, also, I think I guess you've got to be lucky, haven't you, with your first teacher? And it it needs to be someone that's really going to inspire you. And I think. Um, Christ, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? It's like I'm trashing my first piano teacher. <laughs> Name names. No, don't. <laughs> um, in fact, I, I think it, was, it wasn't it was the teacher. It was just me. You know, it was me. <laughs> but but, but when, I, when I finally got picked up the trumpet, yeah, I think that um, she managed to find a... She found a way to kind of open up the imagination, you know, and I think for all of us that have learned instruments, that's at the beginning of the... of your kind of path that's what's important isn't it it's it's not just the feeling that it's um a daily chore or a kind of like a, a rules-based system it's more that it's it's an ex- and it, it's a form of expression so she she managed to un- unlock that with me from the start and that that's something i'm i'm eternally grateful for yeah. yeah yeah what was it about the trumpet that made you think oh i want to learn that 
Well, hilariously, actually, because <laughs> I was nine and very, very daft, um, this letter came through from school, you know, and it was like, do you want to learn an instrument? Back in the days when schools had instruments and funding and all that. And I thought I wanted to learn the sax, but I thought it was called a trombone. I don't know why, because I was nine. <laughs> what the hell? I'd never seen one before, you know, I just like, in, yeah, they didn't even have Simpsons, did they then? But whatever, I'd, I'd seen something somewhere. <laughs> So I put, I think we put a tick in the trombone box and we went into the school to, to try the trombone, but, but the mouthpiece was, was, you know, my own was sure it didn't, it was just not really working out. So she was like, well, why don't you try to trumpet? You know, and obviously it's a smaller, it's a smaller mouthpiece. And there was sort of, you know, it didn't sound quite so much like a chainsaw. And, um, <laughs> so she was like, I'll maybe yeah. try this one, you know? So, so it was kind of an, an accident really. Ah, a happy accident. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then you were, that was your main instrument for a long time, was it? Yeah. I think like up until like I was 22, that was really my focus. It it really kicked in from the beginning, really. And I sort of had every intention for that to be the path, but kind of two things sort of developed. The first was that when I was, I was kind of composing whilst I was learning, I was composing on the trumpet, you know, little ditties, little melodies and stuff. And I was improvising from the beginning. I I always found it much, much easier to learn by ear and to repeat phrases than I could like read a phrase, you know? So I always found, and I still do just, which is actually hilarious because I'm a bloody conductor now, but playing two lines on the piano for me was, was for my brain was really difficult, but if you sang me a melody, I could hit you straight back with that melody. So in some ways that naturally meant I orientated towards jazz music straight away um, and the blues. And um, yeah, I got super serious about it really through, through my, through growing up in my teenage years, like all of us, I guess that, you know, once you, once you develop the passion and you really, really get into it. And then I think, um, yeah, through the school years, I, I was writing for sort of big bands and brass bands because my music centre, the council service, had a great system in those days. And um, so that kind of got me into writing and starting to think about forces and, you know, orchestration and things like that. So then when I got to Guildhall, um, I think that was the first time that I was really surrounded by, well, obviously, you're no longer this sort of like big fish in a little bowl. You're now like, you're the you know there's like there were monsters everywhere and there in so the, many senses Jules <laughs> yes yeah and there were there were like just people that were just beyond I thought I had a lot of drive and commitment but you know Verity we know because we were there together you know there were some people that were just mental I mean there was one guy he used to come into college dressed in a full suit every day and we'd be like dude why are you wearing a suit and he'd be like, I'm wearing a suit because it puts me into the mode of practice, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> in the end, I think he quit that instrument and went off to, like, Brazil, like, right into the jungle and kind of played the ukulele. I think that's what happened in the end. I don't Still know. wearing a suit, though. No, the suit got, like, you know, the suit kind of superhero style got renewed. You went the yeah. other way. <laughs> like has anyone seen a man in a jungle with a full suit um yeah but but anyway so i'm digressing basically i think Guildhall had it was such a high standard and of course all those music colleges are 
and you'd had all these kids that had come from these these really high respected sort of music boarding schools where the level was you know really insane so so essentially it's like on a daily basis just you're hearing chamber groups and orchestras and and basically ensembles which weren't necessarily I wasn't necessarily hearing so so frequently back home from the town that I was, was growing up in so that kind of lit a fuse in my brain really of, of again inspiration and started writing more and so I I guess really when I started that college, the trumpet started to take a sort of a downward trajectory just naturally and the writing started to come up really. So I kind of at a certain point left the college and re-auditioned and kind of went back as a composer. And it was, yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a great move, but it was definitely one where I think my mum and dad, you know, when you've, when any parent has helped to support their kid for something for, for like, 13 or 14 years and then overnight the kid's like I'm not going to do that anymore I guess it's sort of <laughs> it's, okay dear. It was a slight like are you sure you know and I definitely wasn't sure there was definitely like a a sleepless night of like what the fuck am I doing you know like I don't know what I'm doing and actually I really didn't know what I was doing but I but I think I just I needed to change to something else because I'd kind of I don't know what I don't couldn't really pinpoint what it was but I maybe just got a bit bored with it. I wanted to do something else. Well, that sort of neatly brings us on to Heritage Orchestra because in its earliest form, was it a vehicle for um, trying out new compositions and things or were you already thinking about things like the incredibly successful Ibiza classics and stuff? Yeah, what was its earliest form? Yeah, in its earliest form, it was set up, it was a group that I set up with with the view of playing my music. And I wanted to set something up for a little while, I think through my last year of college with a couple of my friends, with Chris and with Joe, we wanted to set it, set, set something up. I think you got, you got so little time with an orchestra in, um, at that point, if you're on a composing course, you got half an hour or something. (laughs) I think it's very difficult to really learn anything in half an hour. Also with an orchestra where like five of the players didn't turn up because they got stoned the night before um so and so can't come and play second violin because she's she's ill etc so you get like 11 people there like trying to represent like <laughs> something you'd written for like symphony orchestra or something yeah so i i put the group together with a view of, of basically playing my own stuff and not necessarily in the, let's say like a contemporary kind of classical way it was really like um, a vehicle for um i guess a hybrid of stuff I was into at the time and stuff I wanted to write. So it was, it was kind of like a beat, but a groove based um, orchestra really. Yeah. And that, that was, I did that in my last year and I kind of, I definitely made a sort of a calculated decision, if I'm honest, to sacrifice a lot of other things on the course yeah. and just do that simply because since I left that college, no one's ever asked me what degree I got and I've never needed it for anything other than probably a couple Would of Would you like us to ask forms. you? No. <laughs> you, if you want the no. cold truth. No, but, um, no. If you want no. the bitter truth. <laughs> You're all right, Jules. <laughs> yeah. So basically we set up with that view. We kind of, we went into cargo. So it went because the first space was not a traditional concert hall. That also set a tone for what the orchestra could or might be. And um, 
the feeling of the audience that was in the room. It was like back in June 2004 was the first concert. The, the feeling was really positive and everyone was really into it. So we were like, oh, shit. Okay. Because we were only planning to just do one gig with it because it's such a hassle. Like getting even, even getting a big band together, you know, is requires a lot of organization. And that was back in the day where like only like, only five people had mobile phones and, you know, and these guys didn't have any credit and these people didn't read their emails. So it was like, you were like phoning landlines all the time (laughs) to check. I used to have this fucking book with everyone's number and numbers in the back and stuff. And that, that was kind of the beginning of it. And, um, and that, that to me, then yeah, it made sense that that was where the path had got to really, because it was a hybrid of everything that I'd been into, I guess, from like jazz music to classical music to, to composing and um and to learning of course because it was you know the stuff we put together in the very beginning if i look back now at those scores and stuff i i probably chuckled at a lot of the decisions that i made because i just didn't know i didn't know any better so at that point were you mainly writing for the orchestra with as you say that kind of groove based sort of lineup so like with the drum kit and plus orchestral instruments yeah exactly so you had like a it, it was kind of rhythm section led and that that time off the top of my head it was it was about 35 of us it was like yeah drums bass guitar keys two trumpet two trombone one french horn tuba one oboe one flute one clarinet and some strings (laughs) if they weren't stoned (laughs) varying yeah yeah yeah, the, the, the very very first gig weirdly i can sort of pretty much remember it sort of as a as a lineup yeah the string was like six five four two and one random double bass player whether you heard that double bass player in the midst of the cargo sound system was fucking beyond me but you know you gotta go for the ideal and then work your way back from there but yeah it was composing for that group and, and after college for about a year or so not so frequently because we had no money and we couldn't really pay anybody and stuff, but we did a couple of projects, I think, in the first year. And um, I think the combination of that ensemble and also the work I'd done before, I, I managed to get a place to go to Los Angeles to study on a kind of, uh, on a, on it was called the Henry Mancini Institute, which it doesn't exist anymore, I think, but it was basically a, yeah, a, a summer camp where you'd get, 80 players that would come together to form a symphony orchestra and you'd get maybe seven or eight composers that would also go there and you, you stayed on like the UCLA campus and basically just wrote your ass off for a month. And to be honest, that month, I think I learned more than four years just because it was intense and everyone was sort of, yeah, it, you had, you know, you didn't want to waste this time. You know, it was, it was a very unique opportunity and I didn't, and I think, but you got a lot of trial and error. Sorry. Yeah. You got loads of trial and error. And that was really where for me, you learn everything. It was like, okay, this sounds shit. Why does it sound shit? And then you get in the room and talk about it and then you go back and, and adjust it and, and play it again and stuff. And it was amazing. And, and that led me to the Metropole because Vince Mendoza was the, was on this summer school as a, as a mentor, as a, a tutor. So we kind of kept in touch after that. And he was, he liked what I was doing with Heritage Orchestra. 
And so he then invited me over. They seem to have like a very similar sort of ethos, the two orchestras, this kind of palpable sense of joy that you get like from the players, but also the audience. There's, it feels like a real interaction. And I, I read the, um, I was reading about the Metropole Orchestras, how it, it was formed. And I just love it. I love the paragraph. And they were saying that it was, a, it was set up to create joy, basically. And like, yeah. then and that seems very similar. So did you kind of have a similar approach going in there when you started out there to, to Heritage? Or did it feel like you had to, bring something new yeah i felt um when i went to the group for the first time we were doing like a cape verdian program because it's an orchestra that doesn't play you know it's like a non non-classical orchestra so in that regard yeah it's very there it's like a brother sister to heritage but it's but it's got a big band configuration with strings around it and, okay and yeah. some winds so it's bigger and the capacity for rep for repertoire old and new is broader you know you could you could pull out anything from like early the really really early kind of symphonic swing stuff to to the most modern it's like a it's a middle ground discipline that there's not many ensembles really that are doing it so i think when i went went in there they probably felt we felt a sort of symbiosis of kind of working technique and talking about groove and playing with that groove and around it that a lot of conductors i guess just an were not really brought up to, to, to understand it. Yeah. When you become the sort of conductor of an orchestra like that, do you end up doing a lot of the orchestrations and arrangements yourself? Then, or is it, do you try and get other people in to do orchestrations? And, and sort of- yeah. Um, I mean, a group like Metropole, because it's so well established, when I first came to them, we did a programme of probably 21 charts and they asked me to write, I think, four of them. And then the remainder of the charts were written by people that were kind of the core arranging family of that group. So you might have maybe, I don't know, 20 to 30 writers or something at that time. And then, of course, a major component of going into a project like that or any project that involves arrangements is being able to fix shit on the spot. And if you're not an arranger you're going to get in trouble, I think. Um, and that was something that they're looking for because there's so many elements of arranging that need to be considered and some things get missed. And if the form's not right or it's the wrong key or they don't like this line or oh, can we change that harmony or what's this voicing or is that a B flat? I don't know. Like there's a million things that, or oh, that's the wrong articulation. It should be this. It's kind of like studio work in a way. That I suppose it's, it's like going into the studio. You, we might be recording a f- film score or something, and, and you've got to fix it on the spot. So over the years, I started to write more and more arrangements. And some projects I would write all of them, and some projects I would write five or six. And I basically kind of would remember if there was a great chart on a project I was involved with. I would be like, okay, who's that? You know, and then I would kind of get in touch with that arranger, you know, because arrangers are all super nerds, really. So you're all good mates pretty quickly and you've got (laughs) a lot in common. And I suppose I, with Metropole, the more we work together, I also, I suppose I started to suggest, okay, I think this arranger for this tune would be the right choice. For me, it's all about horses for courses. I, I don't, I really don't believe that when arrangers sort of say like, yeah, I can write anything, this is really, that's not true. I really believe it's kind of, 
everyone has a sound. Yeah, stylized, um, I guess. You know, yeah. I think so. Every, everyone has things they're really good at and things they're not so good at. So you, you try to, um, yeah, find the right person that would really help to lift that tune within that project. And, um, yeah, so that, that sort of becomes part of it. You start to, you start to curate things within the project and that developed. And, and that, of course, builds a sense of trust with the ensemble, um, which sort of led to starting off as a as a guest and then as a sort of permanent guest and then as a chief and it kind of developed in that way really. Yeah, lovely. And yeah, is that that's was so it nice to be able to sort of Yeah. Was it was, <laughs> was it with that um <laughs> ensemble that you got you started a relationship with Quincy Jones? Did that come about through Metropole Orchestra or was that something independent? That was actually independent. We I was um, managed at that time. I was managed by Sirius, who's, mm. um, and I was managed by John Cumming and Martel Olorenshaw, and they were fantastic. And John, I'd been talking about. We'd been talking about some ideas of, of projects we wanted to try to put together, and um, John was chatting to Quincy's camp at the time, and, and basically we proposed through John. To Quincy's team that hey we, do you want to do a project you know do you want to do an orchestral project together um, and we never expected him to come back like yeah but but basically he did um, that's amazing so it was, yeah it was, it was really out of the blue and it was like holy shit you know because <laughs> once you in some ways you shouldn't think about it any musician that has that much that um, that has been is part of just the history of music. Mm. You know, yeah. you, you shouldn't think about it too much. Otherwise you start to kind of just want to go into the corner and suck your thumb. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But that, yeah. So, and what happened was we, we'd made a record with Snarky Puppy and that got nominated for a Grammy. So I knew I was going over to LA to the Grammys that year. And so I sort of said, Hey, I'm going to be in town. Should we, should we sort of meet up and talk about this? And that, so that kind of, was the first time of of um, looking at this idea, and I think it was just it the Quincy journey and 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 that first project is a good example, I think, of as a musician if you're just starting out or if you're really established. Sometimes you just got to have a bit of the luck, you know. Like you, it's got to be sort of like the right time, right place thing, and maybe a little bit of like good luck because. Not luck, like you're just chucking a dice down and oh, let's see what comes in. But it's sort of like positive luck, I suppose. And and for Quincy, I think he'd always wanted to do something at the Albert Hall, and he'd not done it. And the time was right, you know. So it was just kind of like the planets all just about aligned, and then it was, you know. And and I think for all of us with opportunities, you need that luck, you know. Like I'm I'm grateful for that luck many times, um, and because everyone's like working their butt off, you know, and it's just sometimes it, you, sometimes you get the, the run of the green. And um, I think that for me felt like one of those moments. That's great. Ultimately. Well, it's a fine combination of hard work, determination and, and luck all coming together neatly there really, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's <laughs> well, a lot. Is always going on. Oh, oh no, is it Floyd Mayweather? <laughs> Floyd Mayweather and Kanye West. No. <laughs> Floyd Mayweather, the boxer was always going on about hard work. Yeah. Hard work. But actually... I think you still need some luck within the, within the middle of the hard work, to be honest. Yeah, 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 totally, yeah. yeah. True, yeah. 
Yeah, and they're always saying don't meet your heroes, aren't they? But in this instance, it's it seems to have worked out very well, actually. And uh, yeah, what what is that? What is that phrase? Don't, don't meet your heroes because you. I think it's disappointing. They're using cunts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that is the phrase. <laughs> you know what though? I, I saw like James Brown at the Apollo in uh, late nineties, and that was definitely one of those moments where I was like, "Fuck! I wish I'd not gone to that gig." Oh really? Uh, yeah. No. But I mean, I should have known better. Someone that was like killing it in the like, you know, sixties and seventies yeah. is not necessarily going to be killing it in nineteen ninety. No, nine. It's a similar thing. Uh, I didn't see him, but Maynard Ferguson in his last sort of few years, people would go and see him at Ronnie's or something. Yeah, and just be like, oh, wish I hadn't yeah. seen that. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd, I think you'd come away probably feeling a bit sad, right? You, mm. It's it again. I don't know why I'm bringing in these boxer analogies, but it's the same as like a boxer that's just gone and won too many fights, and yeah. You know, I don't know whether it's working out. It works out for conductors though, doesn't it? I mean, they just literally go on until they drop. Yeah, yeah, you've you got years. A good, uh, profession there. Yeah, years ahead of you. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> I really that that part to me is always mad though. Like an orchestral musician has to retire at sixty five, but yeah. conductor can go till ninety eight, and then they have a heart attack on stage, and it's yeah. all done. You know, yeah. um, you have to go down with the ship but, <laughs> you know, on yeah. the podium. Body onto the rail. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to think you'll be out doing the Ibiza classics when you're 98 or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah be but great. we won't have an audience anymore because that would oh, make them about 132. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> On that Ibiza classics, I mean that that's been a huge thing for the orchestra because you tour that. Well, I mean, you pl- try and tour, tour it every year. You know, uh, pandemics aside. Yeah, it's sort of like, I, I suppose each, each year that it would tour is based upon a, the demand maybe after the last tour. So when we when we did the first concert, at the prompt, we didn't, definitely never expected it to go past that concert, just thought it'd be a one-off. And um, even when we did the first tour, I think we did three or four dates in the UK. And that, that was it. So it obviously resonated with an audience and we managed to kind of keep the audience. And so it's kind of started to roll on now, but it could end at any time. But I think a project like that is, you know, at a certain point people might be like, nah, I'm not really into that anymore. And that's it. I watched a bit of the, um, the BBC prom. I mean, that, I reckon that must be one of the best proms they've that concerts they've done for like just the, everyone in the same room seems to be on the same page, which you, you rarely get at a classical concert. I'd say like where everyone, and it's just a real sort of synergy of everything, the euphoria of that music, but the nostalgia, the high quality of everything as well. Um, and just, I mean, the original songs, I think it, it lends itself so well because it's, because originally, I, mean, I guess a lot of it was samples. Um, I don't know what a lot of those songs use because there's a lot of strings and orchestral instruments on that stuff. And it sounds quite epic and lush originally. So then when you add it to a full orchestra, it's just, just sounds incredible yeah that i think that's totally right um when we approach the concept of it because there's been over the years you know there's always like orchestral kind of like projects that where you feel that it's diminished the music more than helped it to lift it up you know almost like the classic kind of like symphony orchestra plays rock or something <laughs> and then, yeah. lpo and rock like, yeah yeah you've got like tim you got the, the timpani player kind of like 
doing the beat and then you've got like the oboe player playing Eric Clapton's vocal line and you're like, this is, something is not right here. And so I think when we approached it from, from an arranging perspective, it was, you've hit the nail on the head. It was clear that there was already a clear role within the music and it felt to us it was clear how to do it and how not to do it. And and in a lot of those old recordings, yeah, there's a lot of sampling that's going on, um, obviously a lot of drum machines and a a hell of a lot of synths and some of those synths are sort of replicating strings and stuff and got Mellotrons and all sorts of stuff in there. And so it's kind of like, yeah, it's sort of like making a deluxe sort of supersized version of, of this music and threading it all together. But I know what you mean. When, when we were building it up, I definitely at one point was like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> this is going to be like, this is going to be public suicide, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be the end. And I didn't really know until I got walked on stage, you know. I didn't really feel better about it until I got on stage. And then I, I, what you're saying is I could feel this sort of like vibe in the air. It's like, you know, I was going to be fine, you know, but, um, <laughs> but maybe it was fine because it's just very honest, you know, it's like, this is the music, you know, we're not trying to, not trying to do anything clever with it or, um, and there was no sort of hyperbolic bullshit of kind of like bringing in the classical world and merging it and all this stuff that people are constantly churning out with no idea why they're churning it out. Um, it was just like, just going to try to do it really well. We're going to try to do it, play it very well. And, you know, I mean, we went through, we cycled through for that project, for example, hundred tunes or more and tried to, you know, as an arranger, you, you listen to a tune and you know whether there's some inspiration to put that on paper or not, you know? So for example, like the trance element of, of electronic music is one of the more limited ones in this, this sort of live synth or orchestral vein, simply because, you're never going to beat the power of those, like those, those mashed synths and beats. And you'll never, you won't add anything to it, you know? So that, that, that kind of um, subgenre, however, has taken a beating over the years whenever we've been like selecting tunes. But um, I think in a way, it's also a good example of, for arrangers, for example, of that it's really important to stick to your guns when it comes to what tunes to play and what, what tunes not to play. Um, and so often I think, you know, the, for example, if a lot of orchestral collab concerts for me, the ones that work the best are often the ones that they're not trying to do too much, or I guess it comes, it sort of comes down to taste in in the same way as like, like in a film, you know, if you have a score, the score is reacting to what's going on on screen and it's never going to be overbearing or it's got to be the right balance. And I think as an arranger, you have to try to choose a song list and, yeah, get the right arrangers and find a really good balance so that everything is feeling like there's a reason why it's there. Shit, did I lose you guys? No, or? Verity disappeared. I did. Yeah, I've come back. I don't know what happened there. I'm not what having you Verity. <laughs> I just, I've got changed. I just haven't seen. <laughs> I've changed outfit completely. I know you can't see, but what I'm wearing uh, on my bottom half is completely different now. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like, you, know, you know what's funny though just last thing on that is the Ibiza Classics is no different to in concept or anything to any of the other projects that I've done over the years it's just that it's the big it's one of the biggest musics in the world and it has a huge audience and I think at that in the same way as the Quincy thing you know it's that thing where just at that time it was what everyone was looking for and they all came down 
and it worked out, you know, and it could have been crap and it, it could have bombed and that also would have been fine, you know. But is there anything that any of the arrangements that you did that you kind of against your better judgment that you thought, no, I'm really going to stick out for this one. I know, like you were saying about trance bit getting a beating. Is there anything well, that you ins- stuck with? Insomnia, insomnia. That's a cracker. Someone, not me, had forgotten to like ask an arranger to write it. Right. <laughs> so we so we got into the first rehearsal and I was like, where's insomnia? And it wasn't there. Oh. And I was like, oh shit. So we had a coffee break. Yeah, no, that's no, this is what happened. Yeah, we, we got in day one, it wasn't there. So we made a plan. Yeah, the plan was, I said to Matt, I said, dude, can you send me a, a real quick like takedown of the, of the bare bones of what that track is? So he sent me a little SID file that night. And then in the coffee break of the next day, I wrote the arrangement out. And then we, yeah, and then we basically like jammed it out. So that one was um, absolute seat of the pants. Yeah, that's, that's what I remember about that one. And yeah, that's not the first time, actually. Once I remember I wrote silent night in a taxi on the way to an orchestral concert because we needed it it was with uh moya brennan who used to be in uh uh clanad oh yeah yeah so i was sort of as an arranger sometimes you start to get pretty good at writing things very fast because uh what's the word what's, what's the phrase um necessity is the mother of, of invention and actually to be honest like when you're sweating it at five in the morning you know you've got to deliver something or whatever it's incredible what you can create as as creators you know we've all been in those situations yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> but and you, you're writing all the parts like if it's for a symphony orchestra can you do that in a 20 minute break as well i mean can you quickly it, it, it depends how complicated it is i suppose i mean obviously yeah. something like insomnia's got like a, it doesn't even have a chord it's like an intervallic riff yeah yeah so i had a shot i knew i had a shot at it and also you you just basically just you cut out all the options yeah so because i think as arrangers for us one of the major issues with with writing is okay i could go here i could go here i could, I could go here hmm. and then or maybe that's the same as even comp- composing in in that way there is a similarity that you might start an idea and then you scrap it and then you start another one and then you scrap it so when you're under time pressure, the great thing is you just cut out every single choice and you just go from here to here to here and that's it. And most of the time, it's probably the choice you would have always made. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Three. Were you doing some mastering today, you were saying? Yeah, this morning, yeah. Right. So, like, I mean, that's a whole other discipline, isn't it? And and I guess it's when you get to that point, it's quite near the end point of a record being released. It's like you, you're sort of hoping that you've made good decisions along the way. Do you try and find the sound in the recording process or do you 
do you like manipulating things in the mixing process? Okay, yeah, good question. I guess if it's like an orchestral, if it's a predominantly orchestral recording, then you put a lot of your trust in, you know, the engineers you're working with and um, maybe you might have someone that you're even co-producing with. So you put a lot of trust in those folk because you've got, you know, you need a lot of energy if you're going to go onto the stand to work with the musicians. You need to give a lot of energy to the musicians to get to get it back, don't you? So um, I guess like first base is that, but in, but in the build-up to that, if there are certain things involved in the music that really require some care, like, I don't know, the piano's got to get prepared or there's certain synth sounds that are going to get recorded and they really need to be work, worked on and found first, or the drum sound, that's going to take half a day. Um, yeah, then I would sort of get involved and come in and work with the engineer on that. And, you know, if it's just me producing it or with another producer, we would work together. And most of my experience now leads me to suggest that you need to try as much as damn it to find the sound in the room simply because you things like reverbs if we look at simple things if you've got a reverb tail that you can hear most of the time and you, say you're recording some strings and you're doing something you really want it punchy but you're in a big room if you if you can't find a way to like diminish the reverb or you can't find another space you'll never be able to get rid of it and i mean there's plugins and shit but then it's going to diminish the sound of the recording so yeah those things you kind of need to calculate and, and plan as much as possible vocal choice of vocal mics etc etc drum what what's the drum room is it working should we move it etc yeah it's kind of and so much of that comes from trial and error i think as well in the same way as as writing the arrangement and then when it comes to the mixing part again you know you it's sort of like because I'm, I'm not a mixer, you know, like I'd be pretty terrible at it, but I, you know, you go and work with a mixer. So you kind of, you want to hand your work over to someone else in the same way that if you're a composer or an arranger, often you'll hand your score to the conductor and then you've got to let them go with it. You know, you've got to, I think, trust and yeah. being, and sort of like relinquishing the the control and and giving that over is really important as well. I guess that's a big thing, knowing the musicians you're working with and kind of recording with teams of players that you know. You, you can start working out what kind of the sounds they create, the way they play and things. And I guess that's the same then when you go into the studio after, working with a team you know and know that they'll know what to pick out and what you want must be a big deal for you. Yeah, definitely. That's totally right because, you, you know, as you say, you know how they play and also even phrases, they'll, they'll be used to your descriptions of certain musical things you're, you're looking for. If something's not happening, how can we solve it? Of course, problem. I, I guess, yeah, problem solving is, is sort of like, it sounds really uh, quite square, but it's actually part of our lives all the time, isn't it, when we're making music? And so in the studio, you've got, you, yeah, you'll have every day we'll, we'll bring up different problems to try to solve. Yeah, so does it feel like when you come back to working with Heritage Orchestra, does that kind of feel like a comfort in a way, coming back to work with them? Uh, oh, good question. I think there's like a plus and a minus to it. So I think the plus is that there's a rhythmic um, philosophy that's sort of been worked on, which is, you know, all about kind of being like right on the beat and kind of keeping it on the string and, you know, taking notes. It's all about cutoffs and, and you know, like how much are we swinging it, et cetera, et cetera. So that kind of the, the groove sensibility and the groove philosophy is something that 
is already instilled in a lot of the players. So that's good to come back to that. The negative is that if you've got trashed with half of these players when you were 20 <laughs> and they've seen you throwing up on the street, you know, <laughs> post-student union bash, it's sometimes more difficult in, when you're in the breach to really, yeah, you know what I mean? I think yeah, sometimes totally. going into a professional environment, it's you're just focusing on the music, right? So that's it. And I think in some ways there's a neg- it's like a it's like a happy negative um, because your best mates they know when you're pissed and or they you know etc and they can and you know what I mean it's like I, I think in some ways starting a group with your friends is cool but there's always going to be some tensions down the road and I think um, you know if I were to do it again who knows maybe I would just set it up as a group based upon you know the playing you know probably but that's just how it rolls yeah i was looking at your some of your credits on your wikipedia page uh one of the earliest ones is some work with arctic monkeys i couldn't work out because one of them is brian storm it says yeah it's but what, what did you do with that i think it's let me have a look i don't know why it says that because it's i think they mean the ep uh, hold right. on, i've got a while ago that hold on i'm just Look, looking yeah, on maybe you've Look at this. Uh, Somebody who has such an extensive CV that they have to check to see what it is. (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) It was an EP EP that had two tracks on it, I think. It had Brian Storm and it had, if you found this, it's probably too late. Oh, right. So that's the track that I was involved with. Oh, okay. Not Brian Storm, but I think it's the title of the release is Brian Storm. Oh, I see. So did you add some strings or something to that? Yeah, we wrote like an intro to, to if you found this, it's probably too late, like a sort of a mock waltz. We kind of wrote this. Oh, nice. This. And then the other one was um, like a sort of, they did a collaboration with a, another band and it was like in the kind of 60s kind of, almost like something out of Back to the Future, you know, Moonlight Under the Sea dance thing. And it had these sort of sweeping strings and stuff. Yeah, so that was really early on. You're right, it was like, that was completely at the beginning of my sort of, let's say, commercial work. And that, again, was was really came through a little bit of luck. It was like a producer, I believe, was walking through Fish Factory Studios or whatever it was at the time that we were mixing a Heritage Orchestra-only record and heard the strings and was like, oh, that's cool, I'm working on a tune, I need some strings, who's the person that you know wrote that? And then that, that kind of hookup happened in that way. Yes, yeah, the same as a Quincy, really. It's just like right time, right place. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. That's it. It's that luck, <laughs> isn't it? And uh, yeah, so I mean, was that that was was that the first time you sort of working with a big, a big name sort of band? I think so. Um, it was either either those guys or Razorlight. Mm. <laughs> I always remember I wrote this email <laughs> to the dude in Razorlight and I suggested that he might want to... Johnny Borrow. Yeah, he suggest, suggested that he might want to change the third chord to D minor. Why the fuck I wrote that and thought I would ever get a response or even a positive response is beyond me. Yeah, I never uh, got a response from that email. The confidence but of yeah. youth. <laughs> it's like, dude, don't you think it sounds better if you do this? Like, it was such a nerd jazz thing to write. He must have been like, who the fuck is this chump? You know? <laughs> yeah, so that was definitely one of the first ones. So, in, And I think at the time it... it made me realize that there was an opportunity to basically find work for the players that had been doing these heritage gigs for like nothing or 
30 quid or whatever. It's really peanuts. And so that also created a kind of a, yeah, like a new path of that age of trying to sort of get into that world of, of networking and yeah, make, trying to get into the studio and make albums and stuff. And, I was reading that you guys were um, sort of one of your early gigs that you got a bus down to, was it South of France or something with the orchestra to go and play? <laughs> the, I love that. Like, was there a complete got, joy and extent uh, to that? Yeah, we got, a, we got a bus to Montreux. It's really far. It's like, yeah. I don't know, 20 hours or something. And we only had enough money for a hotel room for one night. Right. So we had to make a choice. The choice was, do we drive, sleep, play, go home? Or do we drive, play, sleep, go home? And and everyone decided, (laughs) let's drive, sleep, play, go home, which, of course, is the wrong choice. I do not get an orchestra of 20-year-olds to go to Montreux, get smashed, not use the hotel room because you're out having fun. So everyone kind of, you know what it is, these trips are like everyone kind of just crawls in at six, seven a.m. and then the sound checks are like one or something, and everyone's like, eh, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and then we did the gig. It was with yeah, it was with Giles Peterson. It was his night at Montreux because he actually was super instrumental in lifting the orchestra up in the in the early days. They signed us to his label, which was really cool, Brownswood. And what I remember was the other thing was like we did the gig, and then it was something like. Oh wow, guys! Look, the roots are backstage. Should we go and hang with them? And they were like, "Nah, you got to get on the bus, mate." You know, so it was, <laughs> it was like the ultimate kind of like cosh down. And then, and then someone lost their passport or left their passport in the hotel. And oh god! <laughs> and I was it insured? I don't know, man. It was it was real. Like it was lo-fi trip for definite lo-fi. <laughs> and, and in fact to the point where I, I think I was putting the chairs out on stage I've got a memory now of, of being like no 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 dude the chairs they've got to go here and then I'm like okay the oboe chair goes here you know so it's yeah. Yeah. we know where we're from for sure yeah I was going to yeah. say no rose tinted glasses there then <laughs> looking no, back we, I think we had to use every penny to make it work but also we, we had we had to ask all the players to do it for so for nothing I mean it was they I don't know what they got paid to do it, but I think in those in those early days of any ensemble, you know, everyone's really got to want to do it for yeah. it, for why they're doing it, to, for it to continue, you know. And, and I think um, that and that's probably where the collaborations began as well, because um, that was really was an opportunity to to employ people properly. You're associated now with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, right? As well, is it now? That's right. What's the What's your job? Hang on. Creative artist in association. <laughs> what what that is sounded, that? that what is really it? Sort of BBC News vibe as well. As like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. Create, creative artist in association. So that, what does that? Title. And and what does that title entail there? Um, it basically it, it entails us coming together and, and trying to find projects w- that we feel you know would inspire both the orchestra and me, and yeah. trying to put those projects together. Um, on a sort of bi biannually or triannually affair. The thing is, we came together for the, for the first one with Leanne Le Havis at the Barbican. Oh, the that library. was great! Yeah, um, <laughs> in and it was literally like two weeks before everything stopped. So, I think the the momentum, in a way, that we intended to have 
of course, and for everybody else, for everything, everything to stop. So, but that was the beginning. And um, man, I've been absolutely loving working with this group. It's been so fun. Um, and also because I think for me, like Metropole has a sound and you already, you already um, pinpointed that rarity that Metropole and Heritage have a certain sound. It's quite muscular. It's quite poppy. Just for me personally, really, my heart lies really in the symphonic setting. Like it's where I enjoy writing the most. Mm. Uh, I don't need a band, really. I don't need anything else. But so I, I also wanted to wanted to approach them and see if there was a yeah, like a sort of a middle ground or a mutual interest to do something because I I love writing for that lineup, you know. Um, so with Leanne, it's like okay, let's just take Leanne and a guitar and t- won't take anything else. And, you know, some tunes was just her on her own, obviously, because um, she's got such a killer voice. She can, she can sort of lift herself up above anything, really. And yeah, so that's it's 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 really amazing. I'm I'm su- feel super privileged to be able to do it, and um, hopefully we can do more. Obviously, I was listening to Bittersweet this morning. Where uh, and it, oh, it's just stunning. It works so beautifully with that symphonic backing it's just really lush and like you say like she just carries so well above that and you think with such huge forces behind her it could swamp but her voice is just you know it's perfect isn't it yes some singers i think they just frequency wise and range wise they just don't aren't naturally really geared towards that setting you know but she's got a couple of extra gears that sort of kick in when need be and um there's not many singers i've worked with over the years that have this extra gear but um she yeah she's really phenomenal artist actually and i haven't actually seen her since the gig (laughs) because yeah i don't live there and everything's shut down but um yeah i love that conversation i mean you're living in berlin now how how long have you been there i've been in there for 10 years have you yeah but when i first moved here i think i just kept it quiet just because it just sort of seemed less complicated really to to bother like explaining wait so you're not so you're in London but you're not you know like all these sort of just yeah. pointless conversations really and um but then at a certain point I just yeah really love living here and kind of decided to settle down you know so we've got a little family here now and uh, oh, yeah it's really love, cool I love Berlin it's a brilliant brilliant place yeah, yeah it's, awesome. it's and awesome so you could do most most of your work from there I suppose uh, apart from the stuff you have to do in person do you try and just write there and you've got a studio and I've got like a, I've built a studio here over the last couple of years, bit by bit. And, um, that's sort of all up working now. And, um, exactly. So I do all of my writing from here and recording and stuff, and then we'll go out to, to conduct and put projects together in the live situation. Yeah. Fat. And you're over in the UK very soon, aren't you? For, uh, Father John Misty at the Barbican. That's I can't right, wait. Yeah, coming along. Misty. Coming to see it. Can't wait. Are you- yeah. You managed to get in there quick. I, well, you know, I Rob did. Of, uh, he was there. He was fastest finger first on that button to get those tickets. <laughs> Flipping out, they fly. Yeah. I think it's going to be something really cool. Yeah, I think he, I believe he did a concert with the LA Phil in at the World Disney Hall last month or something. So this will be, you know, should, I'm guessing it's a presentation and augmentation of that. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And the Britain Symphony is, is a really great, a fantastic ensemble actually because they they understand the groove very well. You know, they really understand it. So, they're, yeah, they're a pretty uh, hardcore outfit. Yeah. Is it playing stuff from his new album that you'll be doing or is it a whole range of things? Uh, it should be a range. 
Yeah, yeah. I, can't, I don't want to give anything no, no, away. No, no, I know. No, no, <laughs> fishing, fishing away. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but um, it's going to be fun. Yeah, I can't <laughs> wait. Have you done some arrangements for it? No, no. Um, most of the arrangements are from um, Kelly Pratt. Oh, who's, mate, Kelly. Um, yeah. You know Kelly? He's yeah. been on my podcast. He has been, yeah. Yeah. I love him. Ledge. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to get a ticket for it, so... <laughs> That's my next question. All of this yeah. is an elaborate <laughs> setup, Jules. Can I have a comp, please? No. We're gonna. I've got a plan. I'm gonna try. Um, Tom Carlson. I'm gonna try the, his tour manager. We, he, <laughs> his tour manager's been on our podcast too, Tom Carlson. Yeah. Who? Um, uh, I, is Jules frozen? I think he's purposefully frozen because you're asking yeah, him difficult questions. He's like, question. I'm out. Don't don't ask me. Well, that's okay. an embarrassing embarrassing way yeah. to end, really, well, isn't it? Way to end the show. Um, <laughs> uh, I Jules, guess we should wait. Yeah, I, I guess we should. I'm I'm sorry. We're sorry for asking. Oh dear. Now, I think I think the recording's gone alright. Yeah. I don't mean just the interview, but the the actual, actual physical recording. Because I didn't. We didn't ask for a backup recording, did we? No, we didn't. Oh dear, but I can see there is there was movement on his. It looks like it's recorded. Oh, there we oh, go. He's oh, offline. he's gone. Right. I went, Oh God, is that going to be problematic? Do we think? Are we going to lose everything? I'm starting to sweat a bit because. <laughs> oh, he's ringing. He's what's that ringing? Video ringing. Okay, hold him near the mic. Hi. <laughs> I'm going to get my charger. My laptop died. Oh, okay. His laptop's died. He's just getting oh. the charger. It's all it's all fine. <clears throat> Don't know why I'm showing you to the microphone. That's really weird, isn't it? Um cool. No worries. He's got poor Oh He's gone. He's gone. Well, how do you think it's going so far? Yeah, good. Pretty good. Dead interesting. Isn't he? Yeah. 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 How do you think it's yeah, going? Great. All right. Great, yeah. <laughs> Hello. Disaster zone. No, we oh. thought you were so insulted by being asked for tickets that you were like, fuck this, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what, though? That, that gig as well was one of the fastest gigs where I sort of would get text from, like, friends or whatever about yeah. it. But I think it sold out so quickly, which is really amazing and obviously deserved because he's such a great artist. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So brilliant. So if any tickets come up, but I think it's – Pretty slim. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. I'm going to try it. I was saying try I'm going to try avenue. Tom Carlson, his, his tour manager, he, who has been on our he's been on our podcast too, and he he's been amazing. He's set us up with loads of guests. Uh, oh, that's really cool. Like yeah, I've been chatting with yeah, Tom and Kelly over like the sort of in the run up build up to this gig, and um, yeah, it's really funny because there's a mate of mine here who I play football with. He's not a musician or anything, and he was like, "Oh, I've been chatting to Tom Carlson about this gig." So, sort of sometimes crazy how like connections work between. Yeah, it's mad. I think he literally knows everyone. I think he knows everyone in the world. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) I know you've just gone to get your charger and everything, but Seb, you had to go and collect your daughter, don't you? I've got to go and get my daughter from nursery. (laughs) I'm really sorry. I respect that, Seb. Um, Also, Seb, haven't we actually met before? Have we? Do you think? I, I feel like we might have maybe years ago on like some a gig or whatever. But um, I respect anyway. Regardless, I, I respect the child thing. I'll be doing the same to pick up my son in about an hour and a half. Aww. Oh, okay. cheers, Jules. See cheers. ya. Bye. Cheers.
there we are. That's the end of the chat. A little bit awkward, wasn't it? Hey, a little bit awkward towards the end. (laughs) No, no, no. no. It was just technical issues. Jules was delightful. Yeah, (laughs) and actually, we got a text straight after from Tom Carlson. The all-seeing eye. Um, He said he'd just been in touch with Jules and uh, asked if we wanted tickets to go and see the show. Ah, it's a happy ending, everybody. That's great, isn't it? So we're going to go see Father John Misty. I mean, you actually already had tickets. I did, yeah. I was was just um, on my own, pining. But I do have tickets now. It's going to be so good. I'm super excited. Hey, and guess what? Rob is going to be playing for him on the Joe Wiley show the day before. (gasps) Your Rob? Yeah, my Rob. Oh, wow. Yeah. Super That's excited. So I know. Playing for his hero. Oh. Lovely. Has he played with him before? Yeah. Yeah, he has. He used to do quite a lot of stuff, but I think they thought this time, because Britain's Symphonia are involved, it might be a completely different thing. So yeah. so yeah, no, this is a lovely bit of chance there. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Great. Oh. And Rob, fresh from sanding all your floors. Yeah, he's gonna have to look up he's gonna have to moisturize those hands now, isn't he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Get himself that's back true. in shape. <laughs> yeah you can't you lose all your fingerprints don't you when, you when you get in the sanding game yeah so he's a great burglar now but not such a great violinist <laughs> <laughs> excellent yeah um, oh thanks yeah. Jules by the way that was oh, yeah, so great I can't Jules. believe that he found a moment to chat to us because like he really must be one of the busiest people in music wouldn't you say yeah it, it was like quite overwhelming when we started researching him because we, we were like there's just there's so much to talk to him about. Yeah. Yeah. But like almost we had to be like, let's just, let's not even bother. Yeah. Like n- not bother researching too hard. <laughs> just have a chat because. Let's just not, not bother. Not bother talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> it can't go well. I'm off. <laughs> yeah. I know. If you want to hear more from Jules, then you can join our Patreon because there's a little bit of bonus content. Yeah. A little bite-sized chunk. Yeah. So get on over there. There's a link to that in the description mm. of this show. We love and it when we get new Patreons. It makes us feel so happy. It's really nice. Isn't yeah, it? it is. It really fills me with such joy. So go yeah. on. Thanks to all our current Patreon members of yeah, the Members thank Club, you. but also thanks to all potential new people. And mm. uh, yeah, come and support this show. Help us grow exactly it really does but also we've got something exciting coming up quite soon which we'll talk about in the coming weeks and if you are a patreon member i think <laughs> you'll get an a free ticket dare i say <laughs> yeah should we say that yeah yeah free no more than that to our stuff to our stuff that's right uh hey we had some good correspondence about the last episode with letty and beth I, yeah. I did anyway. Got some nice texts from people. Yeah, that's so nice. That's yeah, great to hear. I think it, it really hit a nerve. Yeah. Struck a cause. That's a better way of saying it. Yeah, hit a nerve sounds like they were very offensive. They weren't offensive. <laughs> they, were, they were magnificent. No. <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah, um, I think... Aren't they inspiring? I've been thinking provoking. about it a lot because hmm. a lot of what they said, I'm sort of thinking about it as I go around working seeing things i've been working yeah. a lot with kids actually doing workshops oh brilliant and, and the you know just what instrument what percussion instrument you give them yeah 
you know that that can that can affect everything can't it like yeah if you give them shaker or you give them a big drum or do you, you know in the past you know you give the boys the big drum and the mm. the large and shiny instrument and yeah you know have you gone the so other way now really though interesting to think about it and go whoa all these little gender stereotypes that totally around. and uh yeah so i think i this is going to carry on this conversation about about gender yeah absolutely um, with other guests as well um yeah yeah so, absolutely well that's, uh, that's if you haven't excellent. listened to that episode go back uh with uh, letty Stott and beth Hyam edwards very mm. good yeah they were very good that's right. And there's there's also another 73 other episodes. If So if you're new today, oh, yeah. I yeah, mean, get yeah. stuck in. That's a lot of listening there. <laughs> this episode is supported by Chimney Fire Coffee. They make, as you can probably guess, coffee and uh, yeah. deliver it to your house. <laughs> <laughs> it does what it says on the tin. Yeah, of all the, of all the three things in their name, yeah. it's coffee that they do. It is. So if you're the- hoping for an open fire, <laughs> think again. Or a chimney, in fact. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they don't really, they don't deal with chimneys. I mean, they. Ha- I guess there's a, some sort of element of heat. Yeah, they have to roast these things, yeah. sure. They need it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they need, they all take care of the fire and the chimney. But, yeah. but they'll give you coffee in return for money. They will. And, and a nice little deal, but, won't they? Nice deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a brand new code you can use uh, for twenty percent off. Oh, go on, tell me, I'll write it down. Of coffee, it is all capital letters, three yes. in a bar, all one word. Okay, I've written it down. It's just Brilliant. that, just three in a bar, all capital letters. Bar. Okay, yep. perfect. Uh, so go and fill your boots with coffee, um, <laughs> and your cups, <laughs> and cups. Yeah. <laughs> We are going to be back in two weeks' time. Mm-hmm. We really are this time. Unless, no more technical unless issues. Unless we do have another another emergency. <laughs> no, no, it can't happen again. <laughs> oh, hope not. <laughs> oh, I feel like maybe we'll eat these words. No, we won't. We'll be back. We'll be back. Two yeah. weeks. Great. Mm. We'll have a lovely time in the sun. Mm. In the sun. Sorry, my te- my tongue got caught on my teeth. have a lovely time in the sun and we'll see you then okay bye Bye. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.